Alright, so good evening everybody. It's so good to be back. I hope and trust that you all had a good Thanksgiving. And it's, uh, I miss this very, very, very much. Last Wednesday night, it was kind of that aimless feeling of, you know, you, your gravitational pull out the door, getting ready, and I'm like, no. So I missed you all, but, but hope it was a, great, was a great Thanksgiving. Last time we dealt with the conflict between the prophet Shmuel, Samuel, and to some degree, God, that there was a disconnect between the two of them with regard to the institution of monarchy. Samuel was dead opposed to monarchy, whereas God was threatened by monarchy and was very concerned, but also believed that it was the correct thing for the people. And so God balanced the needs of the people and the demands of the prophet Samuel, and poor Saul was caught right in the middle of it. We didn't, uh, in an in-depth course, we would spend so much time on Saul. But we mentioned the basic point, which was he was humble, he was lovely, he was righteous. But then he made a mistake with Amalek, battling against Amalek. He spared the king, the nation spared some of the good sheep, and God fired him. That was the end of him and his dynasty going forward. And now we're all waiting with, with bated breath, who's going to be the successor? Here's where it doesn't help if you know this story, because then that kind of gives it away. But in the meantime, it's, it's a very big moment. And so we're up to source number one. So they sent and brought him, this is referring to David, the last, the youngest of Jesse's children from the tribe of Judah. He was ruddy-cheeked, bright-eyed, and handsome. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for he is the one, this is the one. God chooses David, who becomes, just to mention this because who knows when else I'll mention it, maybe even next week. He becomes the most beloved person in all of Tanakh, the entire Bible. And in fact, he is named more times than any other person in the Bible, which is incredible. Because if you're familiar with the Torah, Moshe, who holds second place in this, with all of those, the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, there are many, many, many laws commanded to Moshe. And Moshe's name is in all of them. And he has several hundred years over David. It doesn't matter. Once David enters the picture, he ends up as a human being, the person who is mentioned by name more times in the Bible than anybody else, by a couple hundred over Moses. God obviously is mentioned many, many more times than that, but that's that person. So David becomes the most beloved person in all of Tanakh, and of course the founder of the Davidic dynasty, which just from the Department of Statistics pertaining to ancient Near Eastern dynasties, was the second longest lasting dynasty in all of ancient Near Eastern history. One Assyrian dynasty lasted longer. It lasted for about 60 years longer than the Davidic dynasty. But King David's dynasty lasted 19 kings over a span of over 400 years. And given that we were a tiny... Israel is important to us, but it was a tiny backwater, weak nation in the middle of all of these huge superpowers. It's absolutely incredible that the Davidic dynasty lasted for the duration of the kingdom of Judah until there was finally no more monarchy at all. So Samuel begrudgingly anoints David. And we find something very interesting. And this kicks off where we were last time. When Saul was king, Samuel loved Saul but hated the monarchy. So he sabotaged the monarchy while defending Saul. We talked about this. As long as Saul was king, Saul didn't really seem to want to be king all that much. Uh, but once you take it away from him, suddenly he wants that more than anything. Pretty human reaction in that regard. In fact, he's very human, albeit larger than life. It's a very exaggerated character that he becomes, a very negative character that he becomes. And the once meek, humble, righteous Saul is suddenly possessed by this really horrible spirit, which the Tanakh refers to as an evil spirit. So verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. 
And the Spirit of the Lord gripped David from that day on. So suddenly David is rising high. Samuel then set out for Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord began to terrify him. And that's the end of him. Poor Saul. The rest of the book is a weird thing. What I would have liked, it sounds terrible, but what can I tell you? I say terrible things sometimes when I think that that's what I would like. I wish Saul would have died right now. That's what I wish. It's a silly wish because you're wishing for something that happened 3,000 years ago. Not much I could do to change it. But it would have been a mercy for everybody. Right? Saul is done. He's fired. He knows that he's divinely rejected. He's now possessed by this horrible evil spirit, which is a biblical way of saying whether it's depression or whether terrible, violent irrationality. That's what he becomes, regardless of anything. He becomes a monster. And poor David is stuck. He was anointed by a prophet. He knows he's going to be king, but he can't help but notice that there currently is somebody sitting on the throne. And he doesn't know what to do about that. And the prophet doesn't say a word. He anoints him with oil, goes off to Ramah, vanishes from public service, doesn't kiss David as he kissed Saul, has no relationship with David at all. He just vanishes, and it turns out that what he's doing, there's a really cool thing that you find out in chapter 19, is he is opening up a prophet's school. I would love to go there, even if just for a day. Even if just for a day to see it. How incredible is that? He's training the next generations of prophets. He realizes monarchy is a reality. This is what God wants. We need somebody around here who's going to keep them in line. Those kings need to be kept in line. Checks and balances. So the prophetic balances are the most important ingredient of the monarchy. Yeah, Elias? Okay. So, so Samuel vanishes. The word of God is now out. Now something very interesting happens. There's something, I think I've mentioned it before in this course, but I'll mention it again. It's called dual causality. Yechezkel Koifman, or Kaufman in English, but Koifman, the professor of Hebrew University in the middle of the 20th century, coined the term dual causality. Or in Hebrew it's called Sibatiyut Hakfula. Where the philosophers, just to backtrack, Rambam and all of the great, the great medieval philosophers were tortured by the problem. Some of you may be losing sleep at night also. But I can help with this. You won't, you won't, you'll never lose sleep again. Rambam lost a lot of sleep over the classical problem of, well, if God knows the future, how do we have free will anyway? Because Tanakh assumes God knows the future, and Tanakh also assumes, it's a predicate of Tanakh, that, that we have free will, and therefore God holds us accountable, both for the good and for the bad. Well... How does that work? So poor philosophers like Rambam and all the others broke their heads over it and couldn't solve it because it's a paradox. The Bible is not bothered by this problem a drop, which is why if I have trouble sleeping, it's not because of this, right? The Bible has something called dual causality. God knows the future, we have free will, and that's just fine. When characters act in Tanakh, they're not puppets. They're doing things because they want to do those things. And then the prophetic narrative lets us know Oh, by the way, this is fulfilling a divine plan. Well, that happens here. We know, we're so smart, and the prophet Samuel knows, because he's a prophet, he's even smarter than smart, and David knows, because he just got anointed, we all know that King David, well, he's not king yet, I'm not allowed to even say that, because there's only one king at a time. David is going to be king because God said so, and God chose him. We know that, and David knows that. But... Most of the people in the story don't know that. Saul knows he's divinely rejected. That's already more than the populace. The populace knows nothing. His army doesn't know that. All the people who are going to go through very interesting stories in just a moment, they don't know any of these things. 
So David is conscious of a divine plan. He knows that God has chosen him, but he has no clue how he's going to ascend the throne, because Saul keeps being there. Right? And it's a fascinating dynamic where a character in the story knows as much as we know. Very often, we know much more than all the characters in the story. So this is dual causality, where David is going to act on his own, the characters are all going to act on their own, and we're assured by the prophetic author that David will become the king. And the next several chapters, something remarkable happens. If you didn't have this chapter, David earns the kingdom, and he does it with one nice little slingshot move, right? He kills Goliath. So the people don't know, oh, God has chosen this individual to be king. They don't have a clue. But... That was a good thing to do. It saved the day. The story is famous enough. The the upshot of it is that he's not even a soldier. He has some brothers who are there, so he's bringing a goodie bag to to his brothers at the battlefront. Goliath is the Philistine champion, and the Philistines are the ongoing menace for the people of Israel through this period. Goliath is huge and very, very well armed. And and he's challenging, rather than having a full-blown war, he wants a battle of heroes. He says, hey, Israelites, you choose any one of you guys, and we'll have a one-on-one. I win, you lose. That guy wins and kills me. Great, then the Philistines will lose and will be your slaves. Battle of heroes. Why do we need all the bloodshed? What a nice guy he is. Now, the real person who should have gone up to fight him, of course, is Saul. He's the greatest soldier. He's also the tallest. He's the right guy for the job. But there is no way that he's going to take on the giant. There's somebody else who's there who you, know, you don't realize is there. But somebody else is there who also would have been a reasonable candidate for all of this, and that is Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan, at the moment, is the crown prince. Jonathan has already proven himself in an earlier narrative that we have not spoken about as an unbelievable military hero. Here's a man of faith. He is brave. He's obviously an excellent warrior. He would have been another good choice that I would have picked if I were there desperately trying to find a candidate Saul would have been number one, Jonathan would have been number two. And if Saul is too nervous, Jonathan, you're the guy. You're braver than anybody here. Go up and do it. He's silent, so silent, you don't realize he's obviously sitting next to his father during this whole thing. So David shows up with the goodie bag. He's not a soldier. And he hears the Philistine giant, Goliath, taunting the camp. And it's already the 40th day of these taunts. And he's like, who is this terrible individual who's blaspheming God and the people of Israel? I'll take him. And so he realizes the way to get an audience with the king is he starts poking around, saying, uh, hey, soldier at the front lines, what's the reward for the guy who kills that giant? And, you know, oh, you know, get to marry the princess, tax break, all the, all the good stuff, right? That, that's, what, that, that's the rumor in the camp. And so, of course, you ask enough people that there starts to be a buzz. Hey, there's somebody who seems interested in having this fight. Eventually, it makes it over to Saul. Saul takes one look at David and says, you're not even a warrior. How, are, how in the world are you going to do this? He's like, oh, I'm a shepherd. I'm a brave shepherd. I fight lions and bears, and I, I, could take, I could take this giant. So Saul says, finally, okay, here's my armor. So A, the armor was the wrong size because Saul's taller than everybody. And also, David's not even used to wearing any armor. He's not a soldier. He says, ah, don't need this. He takes off the armor, picks up a couple of pebbles, slingshot, the whole thing. So Moshe, and you know, he slingshots against Goliath, presumably in the forehead, falls over, grabs the sword, chops his head off, dead. So Moshe Dayan, you know, the, the 
a late politician in Israel, quite a great military man in his own right, points out he, he was, a, like all of us, great Zionists of the early generation. They were experts in the Bible, and they loved it on their own terms. So he said, you see, David was a military genius. What Goliath was challenging the people was, I want a one-on-one sword fight. And there was no way that Goliath would lose. David changed the rules. Right? By using a slingshot, he didn't have to get close to the giant at all. He could sling, and even if he missed, he can sling his head off until eventually he hits him. Right? He simply changed the rules of the game. So Moshe Dayan, as a very seasoned general, had a very good insight into the story. What, what Dayan didn't know is that Radak, who was just a rabbi in 13th century France, thought of the same thing. Right? He realized, oh, wait, yeah, there's... Of course, the point is to celebrate David's faith and to celebrate his bravery and his courage on behalf of God. But he also realized, oh, good move. (laughs) He realized that there was something brilliant about using a trajectory rather than using a sword or spear, something that would require him to get too close to the very well-armed giant. So that's point number one. Point number two, this is a Les Mis point that, you know, every now and then, right now, of course, the main musical that's floating through my head is Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. When I sang Elvis to my daughters the other night, the Pharaoh scene, which is easily one of the greatest contributions of all of Western civilization to anything. It's fantastic. So I sang it to them. They're four. They didn't appreciate it. My wife thought it was funny. My daughters will have to wait a few years to appreciate just how brilliant it is that Pharaoh is Elvis. Oh, I love it. That all being said, in Les Mis, which is another fine musical, so there's a scene by this kid, Gavroche. It's a nice song where he was the kid who was able to help, help the rebels and all of that stuff. Ha-ha, you see, little people could do good things. So one of the stanzas actually is, Goliath was a bruiser who was tall as the sky, but David threw a rock and gave him one in the eye. I never read the Bible, but I know that it's true. It only goes to show what little people can do. And then he celebrates, you know, little people. First of all, thank you very much. So, I love that song. I think it's terrific. Now, okay, fine. So he never read the Bible, and that's evident. Okay, so we can nitpick with him. David didn't throw the rock. He he used a slingshot. He didn't get him in the eye. He hit him in the forehead. Okay, those are nitpicky things. What matters more is that it's not at all clear from the story that David is little, which would sort of undermine that stanza in the musical. Our picture of David in the scene is that he's a little kid. But it's not at all clear that he's a little kid. The sages think that he was 28 years old at this time. In other words, he was probably a grown man or at least, you know, a strong, worthy individual. But he was not a trained soldier. That's what makes this so spectacular. Here's a man of faith who was not a trained soldier. Meantime, once he kills Goliath, the world turns upside down in Israel. And now we're just going to read. Here's the, and the text simply presents a roster of reactions. The first reaction, of course, goes to the king at the very end of the story, and that's in source number two. When Saul saw David going out to assault the Philistine, meaning Goliath, he asked his army commander, Avner, whose son is that boy, Avner? And Avner replied, by your life, your majesty, which is a way of saying, I swear, I do not know. Then find out whose son that young fellow is, the king ordered. So when David returned after killing the Philistine, Avner took him and brought him to Saul with the head of the Philistine still in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, my boy? And David answered, The son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. What's happening here is light bulbs are going on inside of Saul's head. He realizes, okay, let's see now. Here's the mathematics of it all. I've been divinely rejected. Somebody out there is supposed to be the next king, but I don't know who. Now this guy just shows up on the battlefront. We've been trembling in our boots for 40 days. 
And this guy just shows up, clearly has this unbelievable fear of God, astounding courage, and he just killed the giant. That's probably the guy. Right? In other words, you don't have to be as smart as King Saul to figure that one out. It's like, that's enough to persuade Saul. I better watch this one. Because there's nobody else. You know, God is going to pick a successor. And this, this guy shows up. This untrained soldier comes and kills the giant. Oh, watch out for him. So Saul's reaction is immediately one of suspicion, fear, and jealousy. Right? That's his reaction. Then comes my favorite reaction, which is Jonathan's reaction. It turns out that Jonathan is there. Here's where we learned that. And that's in source number three. When David finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan's soul became bound up with the soul of David. How beautiful is that? Jonathan loved David as himself. So you see that commandment of love your neighbor as yourself? Somebody actually fulfilled it. And the same expression is used. Jonathan's love toward David is unbelievable. And as far as I'm concerned, he becomes one of the gracious, most gracious people in the history of the world. Because Jonathan is the crown prince. We might know that David is going to succeed Saul, but he doesn't know that. Jonathan is the crown prince. He's the firstborn of Saul, military hero, well-loved by the people. He's the king, you know, the king, king in training. And he sees David go out and fight the giant, and he says instantly, that guy, whoever he is, is worthier than I am. He should be the next king. That's incredible. That's really, really incredible. He just loves and admires David. There's not a trace of jealousy. There's not a trace of being threatened. He just says, he's the worthier one. He should be the king, period. I love that. I think that that's just a pure specimen of excellent humanity right here. And so Jonathan goes down as one of the great figures of the story. Jonathan took off the cloak and tunic he was wearing and gave them to David, together with his sword, bow, and belt. So what, David needed a wardrobe? What's Jonathan doing? He's transferring the crown. He's saying, David, I love you like myself. You're greater than I am. You should rule these people. Later on in chapter 23, Jonathan will say his plan is that he would like to be the vice king. He wants to be second in command. We don't hear that here, but we hear that in chapter 23, which is fine. Jonathan is entitled. He's a worthy figure in his own right. But he immediately senses... I was sitting here for 40 days. I did nothing. This guy shows up and he kills the giant. He's the man. He should be the king of Israel. It's, it's phenomenal. So David earned the throne. Even though we know he was prophetically chosen. This is dual causality, right? The characters like Jonathan, they don't know about the prophecy. They just recognize that David is the right one. So meantime, verse 5, the ro- it's just the roster of reactions. So Jonathan's reaction is absolute adoration, admiration, concedes the monarchy immediately. David went out with the troops, and he was successful in every mission which Saul sent on him. And Saul put him in command of all the soldiers. This pleased all the troops and Saul's courtiers as well. Well, Obviously, the government and the army are thrilled. The giant killer should be in charge. right? Everybody recognizes David is worthier than anybody else around here. He should be the general. He should be leading the troops. There's nobody more courageous. There's no better soldier. There's no better... He has great tactics also. Everybody's thrilled, and the politicians are thrilled. Who better? He's the guy. Obviously, the people love him. Verse 6, When the troops came home and David returned from killing the Philistine, the women of all the towns of Israel came out singing. So he's the toast of the town, right? Came out singing and dancing to greet King Saul with timbrels, shouting in cistrums. The women sang as they danced, and they chanted, Saul is slain as thousands. David is tens of thousands. Ooh. Now... 
here's the difference between all of us and King Saul and the people who are scholars in biblical poetry. You know, the handful of those. The scholars of biblical poetry would say that what the women said was absolutely appropriate. Because the way you would translate this, this is a typical biblical poetic sentence. What it means is, Saul and David have killed thousands, tens of thousands. And of course you put Saul before David because Saul is the king. It would, been, it would have been disgusting had they said, David has killed thousands and Saul has killed tens of thousands. You put David before Saul? That's an affront to the throne. So that's what the, poet, that's what the scholars of poetry would say. They would say the women are singing a song in a perfectly normal biblical way praising Saul and David for being heroes and putting the king rightly first. But all of us hear what Saul heard. right? If you're not a scholar of biblical poetry, what you're hearing is, Saul is a hero, but David is a greater hero. right? Saul has killed thousands. He's a great military man indeed. But David has killed ten times as many. David is a greater hero. And that's what Saul heard. Saul wasn't listening to the scholars of biblical poetry. He was being a man in the Bible, hearing... Women singing praises and saying, hey, this guy's getting more praise than I'm getting. Saul was much distressed and greatly vexed about the matter. For he said to David, they have given tens of thousands. And to me, they have given thousands. All that he lacks is the kingship. So by now, Saul knows what he already suspected. Okay, so here's the scorecard. David kills Goliath. That changes the world. Saul is suspicious and now jealous. It's official. He knows, he knows what's going on. Jonathan admires and adores David and cedes the monarchy to him immediately. The menfolk are thrilled out of their wits to have such a brave man in charge of the army. The politicians are all happy because they all know the people will be pleased. It's good for the country. The women are singing praises and very lavish ones to David. Everybody loves him. But the best part of it all, now Michal, verse 20. Michal, we're still in source 3. Michal, daughter of Saul, had fallen in love with David from the Department of Statistics pertaining to biblical love, which I happen to be interested in also, as a romantic that I am. This is the only time in the entire Bible where it says that a woman loves her man. That doesn't mean that other women didn't love their men. I'm sure Sarah loved Abraham as much as Abraham loved Sarah, but it never says that. It never, ever else says that a woman loves her man. We'll have women who love their children, Right, Rivka loved Jacob in recent, in recent memory. That's fine. But there's no other instance in the entire Bible where it says that a woman loves her man. So this is, big, this is a big deal. And not only is it a big deal, but David already learned that the person who kills Goliath gets the princess. But here, she wants, she's in love with him all by herself. It's not because you, know, you don't have the king yanking her by the hair and forcing her into a wedding dress and shoving her down the aisle. Michal really wants to marry David. Now, here's something really cool. That poor Saul is so in such a bad place, he's missing the point. Saul should be the person, more than David, who is thrilled to have his daughter Michal marry David. Why? Co-opted him. Huh? Co-opted him. First of all, it would co-opt him. <laughs> Absolutely correct. But even better. Then Saul's dynasty continues. God has rejected Saul and his dynasty. This is a way of beating God at his own game. Hey, Michal loves David. David is obviously going to be the next king. Let's set up the wedding. And then my grandchildren will be the next king. That's terrific. That's what would have happened if Saul were rational. 
right? But Saul's unfortunately really not in a good place, and it's only going to get worse. Yeah, Megan. But does Saul know that although he was rejected, that Jonathan is? He knows that he and his dynasty are done, and that a new dynasty is going to supplant him. But here's a way of beating beating God at his game, which never works. But Saul, had he been rational, at least would have made a go for this, yeah. right? Yeah, Beverly. Um, is there anything about? It's curious to me that the, that the um, that Jonathan loves David and that Michal loves David. It doesn't say the love is returned. Yes. So there are two ways to go about this. One is to say David's emotions are, even though we all think of David rightly so as a very emotional person. His emotions are astoundingly veiled in all of these narratives. We don't know how he feels feels toward Saul, toward Jonathan, toward Michal. Whereas it says about all of them that they love David, even though Saul has other feelings toward David also, mostly hostile. But in certain places, it says that he loves David also. So you could say, okay, this is telling. This is a literary move to show that David is hiding his feelings. We don't know how he thinks toward any of these characters. Perhaps he's even using them on some level as leverage to the throne. The other way to think about this is an article written by a woman named Susan Ackerman in 2002 in a journal called Vetus Testamentum, which is a snazzy way of saying Old Testament. It's a secular journal, a Bible, so I try to keep up with these things also when I can. So she published an article in 2002 and made a very compelling case, and it also explains the Michal thing, by the way. She argues that there is no place in the entire Bible where mutual love is described between characters. Zero places except for the Song of Songs where we're dealing with the poem as opposed to real characters. You'll only have unilateral love. And her argument is that 100% of the time, the more powerful figure is the one where it says that that person loves the other. So that's why usually it says that a husband loves the wife because in that world that was the more powerful figure, at least ostensibly, right, in that world. That's why it always says that parents love children, but it doesn't say that children love their parents. And that's why it says that Michal loves David because she was the princess and David was not a prince. She was the superior figure at that moment. So it was a very, once I read that article, I'm like, yeah, she's right. It doesn't take away the possibility that David is still using the characters to climb the political ladder, right? It doesn't take away from that point. But on the other hand, it's not surprising. In fact, it would be shocking if it said that David loved Yonatan. Yeah, Miriam? Why do you Sure. And then I fully agree with you. I fully, I fully agree with all of that. You can certainly read in many loving feelings of David. All I'm saying is what is correctly observed by Beverly, that there's no mention of that word. So you could argue that that is a significant part of the story, that maybe he doesn't love them. But you could argue it's not significant at all because his actions demonstrate like what you're saying and because never in the Bible do you hear about mutual love where both characters in the relationship say, are said to have loved one another. So that, that's what matters. Okay. So poor Saul, really, he has such a good opportunity, but the narrator gives away his motives. So let's go back to verse 20 here. Michal, daughter of Saul, had fallen in love with David. And when this was reported to Saul, he was pleased. So I, again, I'm thinking he's pleased because, hey, my grandchildren is, are going to be the king's. But Saul said, Say this to David, the king desires no other bride price than the foreskins of a hundred Philistines as a vengeance on the king's enemies. That's a good bride price, because the only way you're going to get their foreskins is if you make them dead first. Right? He's not telling David to go be a mohel to the Philistines. He's saying, fight them in battle, and then this would be your trophy. 
So Saul intended to bring about David's death at the hands of the Philistines. The narrator chimes in. Saul isn't motivated by the rational reason of, oh, my daughter will be happy, or my daughter's marrying the greatest man in the kingdom. None of that. It's not, oh, my grandson will be the next king after David. None of that. He's motivated by, I hope David will be killed. Right? Which, so the narrator just reveals his emotions, and we realize Saul is in a terrible, terrible place. Yeah. But, but, but David did that to Uriah uh, later. Yeah. You're right, and we might hopefully we'll even get to your point today, and certainly by and certainly by next week also. Saul doesn't care that his daughter would be a widow. Yeah. Right. In other words, he's not thinking rationally. He's not thinking for the good of his daughter or for the country or even for his own dynasty. Right. It, all these things fit together that this is a great shidduch. Right. But. It, all he cares about is maybe this way David will die. To give an analog, by the way, of what Saul is doing, Saul is doing what Pharaoh, king of Egypt, did at the very beginning of the book of Exodus. He wanted to curtail Israel's population because he was afraid of them, whether that was a legitimate fear or whether he was just as paranoid as poor Saul is over here, right? So his first plan is let's make them slaves. That'll slow their birth rate. That didn't work. The birth rate just proliferated. Plan B, tell the midwives to sneakily kill babies. So that way the mother doesn't even realize that they've been murdered. Well, that didn't work because you have brave midwives like Shifra and Puah not killing the babies. So Paro gives up on that. Plan C is proclaim to Egypt, let's murder their boys. He didn't want to get there. He was hoping to be able to curtail the population without openly saying, let's become a nation of murderers. But once plans A and B fail, so, you know, let's become a nation of murderers. That was Pharaoh's plan. Um, deal. Saul is doing exactly the same thing. You know, plan A, let's see if I can send him to enough battle to get killed in battle. When that doesn't work, let's try to sneakily kill him. When that doesn't work, I'm going to have to throw a spear at his head. And that's what happens in chapter 19. For the first time, David is playing music for Saul. And Saul starts hurling spears at David because his plans A and B aren't working. David keeps winning battles and coming back with as many foreskins as it takes. David, as an ultimate coup, brought back 200 foreskins in front of that battle, actually. So it was a fine bride price indeed. Marries the princess, all is good, but now Saul is stuck. So Saul begins throwing spears at David's head, and this is where David realizes, you know, maybe it's time not to be the king's musician anymore. I'm getting out of here. So he runs away. Jonathan tells him, don't worry, I got your back. I'm his son. I'll tell you everything. With, by chapter 20, Jonathan realizes he has no clue just how degraded his father has become. Saul is simply not rational anymore. He's not sharing critical information with Jonathan. He wants David killed. And when that doesn't work, then he actually takes the army to pursue David. So instead of taking the army to fight the Philistines, the national menace, and that's why Saul was brought in to be king in the first place, he now is going to take the army and pursue David, and that's what he starts to do. That's when the country realizes that Saul has lost his marbles. But he's still the king. He's got the army. He's got the power. Chapters 21 and 22 are one of the saddest moments in Saul's career here, where the priestly city of Nov, that was just the name of a town, David stopped there, they gave him lunch, and that's where Goliath's sword had been. So they gave, him, they gave David that sword because he, he deserves it. He was the victor in that battle. And then he runs off and starts assembling what I like to think of as merry men. He basically is just a refugee, and he finds other refugees who are running away from the law. And by the end of it, he has 600 people with him. Just you know, going around, doing their things, earning money however they're doing it, I don't know. But Saul is pursuing him with the army. And Saul finds out that the townsfolk of Nob, these priests, helped David. 
And he comes in there and says, how dare you help David? He's a rebel against the throne. And they're like, uh, 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 what are you talking about? He's a hero. And then they start realizing that's not what the king wants to hear. So they try to backpedal. It's too late. Saul orders a massacre of these unarmed priests. 85 men are killed. At this point, it's the point of no return for Saul. Saul's done. He is now officially a murderer. He's pursuing David, who is... The text sets it up very nicely. David is flying high as the most righteous, lovable person in the history of the world. You can't not love him. And Saul is done. He's awful. He's become a monster. He's massacring people. He's pursuing David. It's all of these terrible things. And then Miriam referred to the story in chapter 24. In chapter 24, you have this amazing moment. It's a biblical coincidence. It's like this nice little thing where David and some of his merry men are hiding in a cave. And Saul and the army are busy combing the caves to find David and his merry men. They don't care about the merry men. They want David. And Saul needs to relieve himself. So for privacy, he goes into a cave, and as biblical coincidences go, he went into the cave where David and his merry men were. So you have two guards looking official standing at the mouth of the cave, you know, making sure that nobody bothers the king. And the king is therefore entirely vulnerable. So David's merry men are like, David, this is a biblical coincidence, and we're in the Bible. <laughs> Let's get him. Right? It's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's the way these stories have to go. Yeah, that's just the way that I tell it. But, but it, it's, you know, it's one of these too good to be true. There's a thousand caves in the mountain, and Saul chose to relieve himself in the one where David and his men are. That's the way these things go. And so David grabs his sword. He goes up there, and then he cuts Saul's corner of his garment. He doesn't touch Saul. And since it's a nice long rope, Saul doesn't even know that this is happening. Takes the corner of the garment as a souvenir, backtracks into the cave and tells his men, nobody touch the king. He's the king, he's God's anointed one, nobody touch him. It's an amazing moment where David restrained himself and all of his merry men, because think about it, what do you think the merry men are hoping for? They want to kill the king, they're hoping that David will become the next king, and suddenly these merry men who used to be outlaws are now the government. Right? It's a good investment if you don't get killed first. Right? And they figure this is a great opportunity. They go with the guy who killed the giant, and if he wins, well, we, we're his loyal following. It's a really good moment for these merry men. And David says, any of you touch him? Well, uh, it'll be a bad day for any of you. Nobody go near the king. Which, by the way, Ralbag, Rabbi Levi ben Gershon, 14th century Provence, so the obvious thing here is that David is so pious. He re- he's absolutely respectful of Saul. He says, this is God's will. As long as he's king, he deserves to be king. Rabag says, that's true, but there's another dimension which David is thinking about, which is, let's see now, Saul is the very first king of Israel. And if David assassinates him, and David is going to be the second king of Israel, it doesn't exactly set out a good precedent for the monarchy. <laughs> Right? So Rabag argues that that is an additional motivator behind David's restraint. There's the pious restraint, and there's also just very prudent. He doesn't want to undermine the monarchy from within, especially since he plans on being the next king. So both of those reasons together, the whole story is set out that David is just the greatest person who ever lived. He's cast as this unbelievable, faithful brave, courageous. I like the fact that he's a musical man, and I like the fact that he's a shepherd. He's good at everything. Everything. He's lovable, and everybody loves him. Jonathan loves him, Michal loves him, the men love him, the women love him. Saul wants to destroy him, but, but he's in a bad place. Everybody normal loves him, and rightly so, and we love him too. And the whole rest of the what we call 1 Samuel, we mentioned in the introduction, there's no such thing as 1 Samuel. It's the book of Samuel. And then it's been broken up in the Second Temple period to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. 
So 1 Samuel runs down with Saul declining, 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 David doing better, 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 until finally Saul in chapter 31, the last chapter in what we call 1 Samuel, is killed by the Philistines. He is killed in battle, and then David eulogizes him so beautifully in the first chapter of what we call 2 Samuel. That's the majority of the book. But there's one chapter in there, and that's what the rest of tonight will be about, and that's chapter 25. Never, ever overlook chapter 25. Chapter 25 is weird. It doesn't seem to belong, because the whole story that I just told you was a pretty good summary, given time constraints, of 16 chapters, right? Like, a lot happens. And so for 15 of those chapters, it's just that. Saul is plummeting, David is rising, Saul evidences himself as a monster. David is unbelievably pious, humble, righteous, brave, all the good stuff. Plus, he's been divinely chosen. So we realize, okay, he's just earning what God has chosen. We, we now get to see why God picked him. But then there's chapter 25. And the story goes like this. David and his merry men, they need, they need to find food somehow. So there's this rich guy in the tribe of Judah named Naval. What does Naval mean? Miserable person, poor, crude guy. So when the narrator names somebody Naval, that's a strike against him. Right? It's a good way of saying this gross, boorish, horrible guy. So I already want to punch him in the face, and so do you. Right? That's how the story starts. The man's name was Naval, source number four, and his wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was a hard man and an evildoer. Okay, now you really want to punch him, right? The narrator wants us to despise this man. As much as we want to love Abigail, right? Abigail, I mean, poor, talk about bad shidduch making here, right? We have this rich but disgusting individual, Naval, and this beautiful, intelligent woman, Abigail. Now, Naval is having a sheep-shearing festival. So when you have a sheep-shearing festival, there's a lot of lamb chops, there's a lot of wine going on. It's a huge feast. It's a very big deal. So David hears about the sheep shearing festival. He realizes, okay, rich guy, lots of sheep. So he sends word to Naval, hey, would you mind sending out a catered meal for us 600 people? Right? After all, says David, we've been protecting your flocks. Now, Naval never hired David and his merry men to do that. They were just Evident, I, I trust them. I mean, they probably were doing that. But it wasn't a job. It's just that they're raiders. They have weapons. They might have protected against wolves and whatever, hoping to reap some benefit like a catered meal for 600 people. If you've ever thrown a wedding, it's not cheap. But, all this, but, the, but that's, the way, that's the way that it goes, right? Huh? Yeah, or something. But, 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 the, but he's hoping for the, for the top, top, of the, top, top, top of the line stuff. We have a very wealthy sheep owner over here. So he sends, that's what he sends a word for. He says, can I please have sheep? And Naval answered, verse 10, Naval answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many slaves nowadays who run away from their masters. Should I then take my bread and my water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my own shearers and give them to men who come from I don't know where? In other words, no, but with a lot of attitude, right? In other words, not only are you not getting the meal, but I'm really going to insult you. And he does. Naval is an so again he lives up to his name. You hate him, and to insult David, who's such a beloved character. Okay, so uh, you know, Naval is not going to make it as a, as a beloved figure here. But David's response is remarkable. Verse thirteen. David said to his men, "Gird on your swords." Each man, each girded on his sword. David too girded on his sword. 
About 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. And in the course of that discussion that I dot, dot, dotted out, he says, I swear by God's name, I'm going to massacre every last one of their people. I'm going to wipe them out. So when Naval's servants get word of the fact that David has assembled an army of 400 men and are about to invade the sheep-shearing festival, it's going to really disrupt things a little bit. So they run home and they tell Abigail, Abigail, you've got to do something. David is coming after us. He's going to kill every last one of us. And David and his men really did protect the sheep. And he's great. Why don't we, why don't we find a way to fix this? So Abigail swings into action. And she makes the best picnic ever made. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly dismounted from the ass and threw herself face down before David, bowing to the ground. Prostrate at his feet, she pleaded, Let the blame be mine, my lord, but let your handmaid speak to you. Hear your maid's plea. Please, my lord, pay no attention to that wretched fellow Naval, meaning my husband. Right? For he is just what his name says. His name means boor, and he is a boor. So she throws him under the bus. Right? Rightly so. Right? In other words, she is disgusted by his actions, not to mention she really better do whatever it takes to ward off this attack. Your handmaid did not see the young men whom my lord said. I wish you would have come to me and not Naval. I would have sent you a catered meal for 600 people, no fuss, no muss. So here she brings out a very lavish picnic, and she says all the right things, and she pleads with David. And then she says in verse 31, she invokes the moral point. Do not let this be a cause of stumbling and a faltering courage to my Lord that you have shed blood needlessly, and that my Lord sought redress with his own hands. And when the Lord has prospered, my Lord, remember your maid. She's like, look, you're going to be king one day, which seems to have been evident to everybody in the country. She says, if you massacre Naval and our family now, the, the newspapers will pick that up. And everybody will know you massacred a family for not giving you a meal. And if you're trying to establish yourself as a king of justice, of Israelite justice, that ain't going to fly. Right? And David thanks her. Right? David said to Abigail, praise it be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Thank God you came. And he thanks her for stopping him from committing murder. Right? This story is, is really remarkable, actually, because, uh, yes, Naval is as contemptible as they come. The narrator wants you to hate him. He's disgusting. His name means disgusting. He's obnoxious. He's wicked. He's evildoing. He's hard. He's all of these terrible things. He's an evildoer. And David is our beloved David. But you see... You can't kill somebody for not giving you at lunch. You just can't do that. It's not okay. Not only is it not okay, it's horrible. David came this close to committing murder against the whole family. And again, it wasn't nice what Naval did. It was very insulting. It was degrading, but okay. There's one midrash that actually it says it best. You know, Blessed be Abigail, because all the sacrifices in the world, that David never would have obtained forgiveness for this one. The Midrash understands what David understands. David thanks her and says, thank you so much for stopping me from committing murder. Because this is wrong. The fact of the matter is, David was going to do that. And suddenly, for the very first time in our encounter with David, even if we were doing an in-depth course and read every verse, there is nothing that would make you think that David is a fearful character. He's lovable. He's excellent. He's modest. He's humble. He's saintly. He's so pious in every way. But all of a sudden here, he's completely flying off the handle. This is early on in his career. 
This is pre-king, right? He's not king yet. He knows he's going to be king. It's not long now before Saul gets killed in battle, and then he will be king. But all the same, this is a shocking moment in his career. So Radak, following Talmudic leads, explains that if trying to give some rationale other than hot-headed to this thing, they argue that David already felt himself to be king. He was anointed after all. He killed the giant. Jonathan has already ceded kingship. The king of Israel is his father-in-law. Right? He's married to the princess. He feels very royal. If you talk to a king that way, the way Naval spoke to David, that's, that's pretty bad. <laughs> it's an affront to the monarchy. It's an affront to the nation. That could actually be punished very severely. So they argue that David was, even though he was not yet king, felt like he was a king, and therefore he wanted to mete out retribution against somebody who was not helping the king. There's one other little piece, and then we'll look at this fabulous Talmudic passage. If you go back to verse 31 in source 4, this is at the bottom of page 2 over here, right? Do not let this be a cause of stumbling and a faltering courage to my Lord, that you have shed blood needlessly, and that my Lord sought redress with his own hands. And when the Lord has prospered my Lord, remember your maid. Once you become king, remember me. How exactly should he remember her? Like, are we talking Hallmark cards? What, what, what are we looking for here? It sounds like, and this is certainly how the Talmud and many later commentators, that she's winking at him. And saying, huh? I'm finished with Nabal. Right, something needs to go. Namely, the husband's got to be out of the picture for this to work. Otherwise, we have a problem with adultery. But all the same, it sounds like Abigail is already thinking, look, I can't stand my man anyway. And now we have this superhero coming down to my, my thing, gave him lunch. By the time you're prosperous, you can remember me because I'll be available. Right? That's what it sounds like. And to clinch this point, since Naval, obviously, like everybody else at the table, I will say, once I was, at, I, was, I was at Met years and years and years ago, I, I really want to find this painting again. I'm sure I can go online and track it down. Because, like, there's so many great things to talk about, or if, you know, I have no artistic talent at all. Like, none. But, you know, you can draw so many excellent paint, at so many excellent scenes from the David story. There was one really fabulous picture of Naval's sheep shearing festival. And it was just all the people around the table having a party. It was I was like, that is so great. It's like, talk about this obscure angle that's not even important to our story, let alone to the overall David story. I thought that was really cool. So go, go whatever artist that was. In the meantime, that was years and years ago. I'm sure we could, I'm sure we could look it up. Yeah. Uh, the, when she says, um, not let this be a cause of stumbling, the, uh, Moses kind of talked to God, or one of them talked to God about, don't do this uh, wretched act against, I think the people in the desert was, uh, because uh, you're going to look bad. Correct. You know, so it's a kind of a similar... It is a similar thing, different, different things. God would have been fair in doing what he did. It's just that Moses said, don't do it anyway, because it's bad for your reputation. But David was about to do, really was bad. Right? In other words, you can't massacre a family because they were obnoxious to you. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Right? Parking spot stealing is enough. Well, anyway, but... But that all being said, the next morning, verse 37, at the top of the page now, next page, the next morning when Naval slept off the wine, meaning he sobers up, his wife told him everything that had happened, and his courage died within him and became like a stone. She's like, you know, David was about to massacre us, and I brought out a catered meal for 600 people. And he's like, ah! And all of a sudden he just drops dead, basically, right? He gets smitten. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Naval and he died. 
Oh well. When David heard that Naval was dead, he said in Hebrew, Baruch Hashem, right? Literally, that's what the text says. Praise it be the Lord who championed my cause against the insults of Naval and held back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has brought Naval's wrongdoing down on his own head. David sent messengers to propose marriage to Abigail to take her as his wife. And even though it's not in the text over here in the verses I've given you, she said yes. And, and, and they got married. So it sounds like Abigail was already thinking marriage in that earlier scene. David was intrigued by this possibility. Everybody understood Naval had to go. And, well, there he is. Ten days later, he's gone, right? There you go. Very nice. So, the end. The Talmud always sees, you know, what you have a little bit of taste of in the text, the Talmud just draws it out. And that's going to be in source number five over here in Tractate Megillah. You know, they, they turn this whole halachic thing you know, the Talmud often does this. They turned it into a halachic legal discussion for a little while. She replied, are capital cases tried at night? It's like, how could you attack at night? This is a capital case. He said to her, Naval is a rebel against the king, meaning himself. And no trial is necessary for him. Hey, he insulted me. I'm the king. So I want to punish him. I don't need a Sanhedrin. I don't need a trial. I can call for a massacre. I'm the king. She, she replied, Saul is still alive, and your fame is not yet spread abroad in the world. Meaning, wait a minute, you're not yet king. You're on the way, but you're not allowed to punish Naval and his family, including Abigail, Abigail, while you are not yet king. So in other words, this homiletic passage assumes that David is motivated by the sense of, I'm royalty, you're insulting me, I'm going to kill all of your family. So Abigail responds, sorry, you're not yet king. You're close, but you're not yet king. Then he said to her, blessed be your discretion and blessed be you. You have kept me this day from blood guiltiness. In other words, he thanked Abigail, David thanked Abigail in the text for saving her, saving him from murder. The word damim, blood guiltness, is plural to indicate two kinds of blood. The passage teaches that she bared her thigh and he went three parasangs by the light of it, meaning he was astoundingly turned on. Right, that's what the Talmud is saying. And I was just taking that little flirtatious dialogue where Abigail is sort of proposing marriage and turning it into a very sexually charged scene. He said, listen to me. She replied, let not this be a stumbling block to you. So here's the Talmudic thumb. I think we've already had a lesson in that here. I hope so. But in the meantime, the Talmud always does this. When Abigail says, let this not be a stumbling block to you, what she's saying is, don't murder us, because that's going to be a stumbling block. It's going to be bad for your track record. The Talmud pulls out its thumb and says, let not this be a stumbling block for you, meaning something else will later on be a stumbling block for you. And that, of course, refers to, what would that be? The incident of Bathsheba, and so it was eventually. Now, Abigail wasn't thinking about Bathsheba. She doesn't know who Bathsheba is, for all we know, right? She's, but the Talmud is saying... I think something very profound here. This story is foreshadowing the Bathsheba and Uriah story. One way of reading King David, we'll talk about porcupines next week, I hope. Please remind me to talk about porcupines. But the gist of porcupines, the way I see it, we talked about already in, in, in our series, the idea of trying to understand the Bible backwards and forwards. And I, and I mean that quite literally. When you read the story forward, the whole point is that David is fabulous, excellent, fabulous, excellent, and then the whole Bathsheba Uriah thing, and bam, just explodes. And you could ask, well, where did that come from? And the answer when you read forwards is, one moment of lust, and that ruins everything, right? And then a series of really bad 
judgments after that. Okay. But when you read backwards, and that's what the Talmud is doing here. The Talmud is saying this story that we just read together, it's there. David has all the ingredients he needs to have abuse of power and illicit sexual relations with married women. Nothing happened in this story, right? Abigail made sure that Naval was conveniently dead. And then they got married. No adultery. All that happened in this story is flirtatious interchange between married woman and David. And no sin happened. And thankfully, Abigail stopped David from killing an obnoxious but still not guilty of death individual. But down the line, David is going to kill Uriah, who frankly is one of the most lovable people ever. Right? He's loyal, he's faithful, he's pure, he's so excellent. The husband of Bathsheba is going to be killed off by David. And we suddenly see in this story, the ingredients are there. That even this pure, righteous, excellent, heroic David, everything that's going to bring him down later on, meaning next week for us, but, but later on once he's king, the ingredients are already here. Yeah, Sam? Or impulse control. Hmm? Or in, impulse control, whether it's for killing or essentially. Also, you know, the Arameos Ish, the white young Asa coming to Yaakov with 400 people. Yes. When, when, when I teach by Yishlach. Huh? It actually was a normal size for like a military troop. There are several biblical narratives that have either 400 or 600, and David kind of oscillates between those two numbers. But 400 or there's a good reason for, for Yaakov, Jacob, to be fearful when Esau, he's fearful of Esau if he came alone. But certainly if he's coming with a band of 400 people, it sounds like an army. It, sounds, it, it was a conventional number of people to bring. So the Talmud, I think, is nailing brilliantly this backward and forward type of thing. Where again, when you read David forward, the whole point is he's pure and Saul is going to pieces. And then he suddenly, David suddenly collapses with the Bathsheba and Uriah episode that we'll discuss next week. But when you look backward, this story, I think, really reveals the ingredients are there. Thank God David stopped in his tracks and Abigail helped him stop in his tracks. But the ingredients both for sexual relations with married women and murderous instinct towards somebody who doesn't deserve to have those murderous instincts channeled, they're, they're all right there. Professor Moshe Garciel, who taught at Bar-Ilan University for many years, he wrote a book back in the 80s on the Book of Samuel, which I think is really great. It's still one of my favorite books on the Book of Samuel in, in academic scholarship. He argues that this story also does something else for us, which is true. I mean, it's what we've been talking about, but he says it in a nice way. Everything in this story is so stark. Saul... Bad is the wrong word, but he's acting very badly. There's nothing good about him in these stories. And David is fabulous. This story blurs those edges. It shows that there's some more grayness to the story than we had thought. This story shows that David also has a side that is very dangerous and negative. And you could argue very well, you could be a good psychologist here, at least on some level, the reason why David is responding with such hostility toward Naval is that he's really reacting toward Shaul. All the hostility that he has towards Saul. Saul's hurling spears at him. He's trying to get him killed in battle. He's pursuing him with the army. And David faithfully upholds Saul. Saul is the divinely chosen monarch. He's my father-in-law. He's he's royalty. I'll I'll wait my turn. But he still has a lot of anger in there. So Naval suddenly gets that. Right? Suddenly David, and this chapter is right in between the two moments where David had a chance to kill Saul and didn't. You have the cave scene in chapter 24. Then there's another one in chapter 26 where 
I mean, again, Saul really needed to pay for better, better bodyguards, right? I mean, he has a whole circle of soldiers, and they're all asleep at the same time. Whatever happened to Shemirah? Right, where somebody's awake watching the camp to make sure nobody comes. So they're all asleep, and David just waltzes right on into the circle and takes Saul's canteen and his weapon. And then he moves to a safe distance and is like, yo, I could have chopped your head off, and I didn't. It shows that I'm loyal. And Saul apologizes, but it's too late. Yeah, Barry? Yeah, well, um... You know, when you talk about David and Bathsheba, that opens up uh, David for the need to do Teshuvah. Now here, uh, you know, he's beginning to act like that, but there really isn't a need for him to do Teshuvah yet, is there? There, no, no repentance officially, but he, what, what I think your point is well taken, that he immediately stops in his tracks and thanks Abigail, you know, she acknowledges the criticism. Because all that, there's so much inner turmoil for him. No, I think that you're right. I think that that's the other ingredient of David that, again, you only see latent here. That's going to become a hallmark of his, namely his ability to say, I'm wrong, and to, to repent, and to take responsibility for his actions. So the Talmud is focused on the negative stuff, which I think is very important to understand. It didn't come from nowhere. It wasn't just a momentary lapse of lust when he sees Bathsheba bathing. Is that he has these ingredients within. But I think you're right also. I think your point is extremely well taken, and some of us should. Here's my hand. Yeah, so the, the boundaries are blurred, and this is something that's going to set us up for next week, which is where we talk about David as king. I mean, at this point in our journey, Saul has been killed in battle. Jonathan also was killed in the same battle, and. David eulogizes them. And at this moment, we know, as sad as that moment is and as sad as the eulogy is, okay, now it's time for David to be king. But there are a few wrinkles, because there are always a few wrinkles, and we'll get to all of that next week. Next week, by the way, is our last session until the end of January. I will remind everybody of that then also, but it's really good to see you again. I'm happy, you know, one week off is already enough for me. I look forward to resuming with you next week. Have a wonderful week. Okay,